Here in Orlando, Florida, O-Town Compost is leading the composting revolution, recycling organic waste into a nutrient-rich resource. Join Charlie Pioli, founder of O-Town Compost, as we hear from the nation's leading voices behind the grassroots community composting movement. Welcome to the Community Composting Podcast. If you enjoy the Community Composting Podcast and want to support future episodes, please follow the link in the episode show notes to give a small monthly reoccurring donation, even if it's $5 to $10 a month. We'll continue to come out with killer content to keep the grassroots movement rolling. Welcome to episode number 40. I can't believe it's already 40 uh, of the Community Composting Podcast. Here we have Phil with Key Compost located in the Mid-Atlantic. Uh, Phil, where are you based right now? Where are you headquartered? We're outside of Frederick, Maryland. Uh, we That's where I live. That's kind of where we started. And we service areas kind of between uh you know, as, as a lot of people tend to establish their map in their very early days, you know, getting those early adopters, uh, perhaps driving too far, but making it work somehow. So our stretch currently is from Washington County, Maryland, which is kind of as you get towards the rural areas up in the mountains. And then uh, Hagerstown area is the city nearby there. And then kind of down towards D.C. And because there's so many compost companies down towards DC. We don't you know, go after it hard, but we take opportunities when they're perfect for us. So yeah, that's Frederick, Maryland is our home and kind of where we do, I would say most of our, our attraction to density is within our own city here. Uh, and our efforts go into driving density inside of, of Frederick, not so much kind of competing on uh, yeah. DC stuff, but yeah, Frederick. And I saw on your website, you have a, um, it's free leading me to believe that the city of Frederick is subsidizing the program, but, uh, people in Frederick can sign up for composting services through your website, uh, for $0 a month. That's correct. There is some stipulations to it, but, uh, generally that's, that's true. So there's, it's a pilot, and the, the goal of the pilot was to look at pound-for-pound pound cost savings and expenses to the city's budget when it comes to you know, landfill and, and transfer uh, waste transfer volumes and prices and all that. So they, they've been talking about composting for years, and we've been advocating, you know, just, just get on the map, uh, do something small, you know, a public drop-off or anything, and they surprisingly kind of skip some of the easy steps of of having a, a public drop-off which seems to be one of the first ways that we find communities get their toes wet with uh, with adding a bit of tailwind like support and momentum from the municipal side to composting so frederick city jumped right into subsidizing a pilot and that pilot you know i said there were stipulations to it it has to be a location that receives waste services from the county as well, because they want to measure pound for pound difference of composting to landfill volume. So if it's a like a multi-res that's picked up by a private contractor, they won't service that. Uh, and then there's the city is chopped up into uh, 12, I believe 12 
NACs is what they call it, NAC. So it's a neighborhood advisory council, basically districts. And the way that the, the rollout occurs is they're kind of throttling participation and engaging like the ramp up by way of extending it to uh, kind of one knack at a time or two knacks at a time. So it's is this multifamily and commercial or is this single family residential? Single family residential, but also multi-res. If that multi-res building is getting trash services from the city. Okay. So it's, yeah, if, if oh. they have the ability to extend services, then they will. Right. Cause they want to be able to compare it to, you know, the, the other, I guess, scale tickets and stuff that they're, they're picking up and, and like what's coming from those properties. Exactly. That's amazing though. I mean, what was the process of like getting them to, you know, contract with you guys? Was it through a RFP bid process or how did it work out? Yeah, the way that it worked really was it. I'd like to say that I, I planned it this way, but really we just kind of kept our fingers crossed that it would work out this way. It's not like I'd, I really had much manipulation to uh, the, the community and the politics and the ideas that floated around our county council or city council. It was, it was more so kind of getting residential off the ground a number of years ago and gradually building that community support and people advocating for it. Uh, and so I think really building that social capital was the way that we pulled it off. It wasn't necessarily one relationship or one idea that really got it through the finish line. I think it was, was building it support. Just your subscribers independently going to the city or did you guys, how did you leverage your social capital? Just engaging with them really. Uh, yeah, just being being present, there's some local green teams and sustainability committees and stuff like that and being vocal with them. Uh, one thing that's unique about our community is that our community fought an incinerator about 15 years ago, I believe. It was a, it was a big deal. They were gonna put a large waste of energy incinerator in our community and a, a large group of people mobilized against that. And so we plugged straight into that like pre-existing advocacy group. Uh, they were already organized. And, and that's been one of the biggest advantages is kind of going where people already were. There was already people mobilized for sustainability issues. And it was that, that base that was our big supporters uh, that kind of helped take the initial momentum that we had from just kind of starting, you know, residential out of the back of my car kind of thing. And scaling that into, you know, this this RFP, I unfortunately I don't have a silver bullet answer. There wasn't anything that really took off except for having uh, having motivated individuals. We got lucky that some of our uh, our supporters got voted in to county council, uh, and you know they've been advocates of ours for a long time, and we just gradually hit this critical mass of people that wanted to see this in the community. Wow, that's so awesome to hear. I love hearing like 
people's how they make a difference on the polit local political level and um you know the same is true for us here in orlando florida we have a couple county commissioners one uh one is a subscriber the other i've been on her podcast but um you know unfortunately we're you know we don't have the same like we're a pretty big metropolitan and we don't have the same kind of uh, environmental community that you do, especially after fighting an incinerator. Um, Florida is the, the state with the most incinerators in the country. Mm. And I wish people here in Florida realized the harmful effects of, you know, waste energy. It's not really waste energy. And ironically, it's included in the state's recycling rate. All the tons that are burned are included in the state's recycling rate, which is ridiculous in my, in my mind because, you know, all that organic waste is very wet. It needs, they need to oftentimes add oil or another fuel just to get the furnace hot enough to burn through it. So, yeah, that's, that's something that we're seeing in a lot of the legislation is, is calling things what they are, you know, and kind of removing uh, subsidies for not, you know, for green infrastructure or subsidies for recycling uh, to be accessible to, to methodologies or technologies that aren't, you know, that haven't really proven the test of time. I imagine in the point where, you know, waste was being transported, you know, 150 miles potentially like putting waste, to energy and like help save a community a lot of money, but it's iterating on that is kind of the next step, right? Like, no, nope, yeah. that's, we're going to change that now. Yeah. And I'm hope that trickles down South here. Um, because yeah, if it's not economical, it, it can't go on. So that's, yeah, that's cool. Um, so my next question is you guys you know what are the areas of your business because it seems like you guys are a little unique where you're selling you know soil amendment products as well as you have a pretty robust uh, compostable um, products shop and you do your standard commercial and residential collections uh, is there anything else? Uh, how would you kind of describe the different arms of your business? You know, this is, this is one of those things. It's kind of like we, again, we didn't really design it this way. Kind of like the municipal support. We just kind of kept showing up and seeing if we could be of value to people that, that were asking things of us. And it was, it was around 2019. We had, we started like 2017 or 18. You know, I really should know the numbers, but it was it was kind of at the cusp of the, the year, the beginning of the year. So not long after we had started, we got encouraged to do commercial, which was a very stressful endeavor to undertake, as as anyone I'm sure that's that's kind of scaled from Yeah, that's like, where the volumes at. <laughs> so Yeah, it's a lot, it's a lot of work. Uh it's a lot of expense, it's a lot, you know, a lot of trucking. It, everything that everyone knows about just kind of scaling into commercial, it's, it, it's a little harder than residential. And at least it has been for me. Uh, that might be my, my skills coming to the table, who knows, but 
to answer your question on like how we ended up doing kind of the different things that we do and, and that compostable products, the soil products, it's really just showing up for, for things that aren't existent in your community. We had some commercial accounts some coffee shops that were really looking to increase the amount of waste diversion that they were doing by transitioning away from single use plastics. And this was, this was early 2019. We, we didn't have any leads on, you know, where to send them. Uh, so some friends of ours had kind of introduced us to the eco products group. Uh, many of you probably have seen the, the social media from eco products. They're growing a, a pretty large team to try and kind of integrate their manufacturing into uh, kind of a solutions-based uh, end, end use, end cycle. The end of that supply chain is kind of important to them. Uh, so we got connected to them and just started chatting about ways to, to get product into the hands of this coffee shop so we could answer their, their emails to say, yeah, we know where to get that stuff. And we got encouraged by them to, to just start selling it to, to the different restaurants. And what started as it was literally a server closet, like you could barely stand up in it, just tossed in a couple of boxes of, of hot cups and uh, cold cups. And then now it's, it's grown to what it is. So again, it was showing up for, for what people were asking for from us, the local supply suppliers like you know the cisco the u.s foods as well as some of the mom and pop distributors for a lot of restaurant and food service goods ignore that segment of the compostable side the the sustainable packaging side and and i can i can riff all day on like are we there yet with truly renewable and sustainable packaging i think that it's a good step forward but mm -hmm. uh, we we didn't see any coverage of of the sustainable packaging from those large scale uh, distributors. So we just jumped in and started doing it more so to try and make our customers happy, not so much as a big business opportunity. And it actually has grown to a fairly large part of what we do, but it wasn't really like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we didn't, so, we didn't I think mean, of it from the inside, so to speak. Yeah. It seems like there's a lot uh, in between, you know, starting with that coffee shop for you guys and, you know, building such a huge, um, you know, part of your business and revenue stream. But, you know, what, I guess um, you must've really believed in these products. And I think what's, when most community composters start off, they're just like trying out anything and I quickly realized, like when I started, I, I got a subscription to World Centric, another compostable product, uh, you know, company. And I thought, hey, this is a good way to make money to be a distributor. But I quickly realized there's, you know, that's a whole nother business that has nothing to do with, you know, the, the collection and the hauling of, of food waste. And then I started to realize like a lot of these products, they may be BPI certified, but they're, they, re they resemble plastic and, you know, they oftentimes have to get recycled, you know, cycled into one pile after another. 
just to get them to break down to a, a particle size where you can like screen them. Ha have you guys noticed that those BPI plastic uh, products break down just fine? And you know what what products do you prefer in your own piles? That it's an it's an excellent question. It's one that that is evolving over time. Uh, our facility is still fairly young, and so there's there's the reality that it might be a little bit more variable on temperatures now than and potentially it will be as we scale up the facility. So there's some mechanics to processing that will hopefully make that a lot easier. But in general, I'm amazed by how little contamination we get. I think it's because we take an active role in, in the supply chain. We, we collect the, the amount of stuff that we do front of house. Like we were very cautious and sometimes do not support or do not allow like front of house collection if we're not part of the uh, part of that supply chain. Yeah. And it's not that it's monopolistic, like we don't need a hundred percent of it, but we need to be we need to be at the table. We need to know what kind of materials are going in that bin. We need to have trainings with that kitchen staff. And honestly, the part that is tough for me is where if that if those products are getting sold by by a large broadline distributor like Cisco US Foods, they're not they're not helping with the training. They're not helping with, you know, if, if the item is out of stock, replacing that item. Yeah, they're they're not involved in the operations of the kitchen. By being a vendor that's working inside the kitchen as well as you know, outside on, on the curbside by the dumpsters, that allows us to have a tighter relationship. And I, I recognize you could have that relationship without getting involved in the business of selling food service disposables, but it's added a source of revenue to pay for the time that it takes to try and get them compliant. And we're usually the first ones to know if they've stopped purchasing a BPI certified item because we'll see it drop off. We'll, we're in their, uh, their storage closets. We're, we're talking to them and we're building relationships with them. Uh, kind of the, the way that I've described it to, uh, um, to non-industry folks is it's been a lot of fun for us as a waste hauler. We always wanted to come in after hours and be super quiet. And for the goal was for no one to notice that we existed as a waste hauler. That was ideal. And now, when we're going in and selling products to the management, to the purchasers, we're building a lot of relationships. We're going in both through the front door and the back door. So it's, it's building that relationship with them. You I'd say that's your, the biggest advantage. So you're selling B2B like commercial to commercial clients. Do you have your commercial drivers who are there to pick up food scraps also drop off uh, the serviceware as well? That that was a goal that sounded efficient from the beginning, but there we've kind of, uh, from logistics terms, kind of decoupled that infrastructure. Like our farm is at a different location, uh, the vans are different, uh, so it 
just out of necessity. It, it hasn't kind of aligned that way yet. Um, but yeah, that's, I mean, that's interesting. We're trying to do that now with cases of compostable liners and, you know, we have just a small truck with a small cab and there's no room in the back. Uh, Cause that's where the food waste goes. And um, we just like stuff them in there. So I think it's got to yeah. change in the future, but I, th I think front of house is a, a sector of the food service industry that no, you know, there's not a real, like, uh, you always have to customize the composting program for front of house. And most composters are very hesitant about taking that on because that's traditionally where a lot of the contamination comes. I'm not sure if I've told this story on the podcast, but we we're composting front of house for a university and they thought they were going to like develop the signage and make it very uh, glamorous and flashy above the compost bin. But regardless, uh, you know, we got a couple weeks worth of material and we're like, holy crap, this is not only contaminated, but it's got all this like little pieces of forks and straws and uh, kind of like wrappers and ketchup packets. And even though it's only makes up maybe 10, 5% uh, of the material, like it's, I, we can't handle it. So we, act, that's the one time we actually had to, you know, reject a load and just take it straight to the, the transfer station, unfortunately. So, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's extremely difficult. But uh, I see what you're doing where you're actually controlling the products that are there in front of house. And then you're at the table. So you have a lot more say and, you know, where bins are positioned and, you know, are there any ambassadors who can kind of stand by the bins and, you know, direct people's throws? Um, I think that's a great way to address front of house. Yeah, it's it's not perfect, but it you said it well. It just puts you at the table that I think you're you, we can iterate faster. And we, it also gives us an opportunity to put a little bit of pressure on the manufacturers to assist, uh, you know, in, in making sure that some of the communications from us as the, the custodians of that end product, that waste, mm -hmm. as well as one that's interfacing on a, on a weekly, potentially daily basis with, with the buyer, the, you know, in the front of house group, the, the uh, staff, the back of house staff, those messages are making their way back to manufacturers and we can put it, 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 it is a lot of these companies are mega, mega big companies that were involved in manufacturing plastics. And a lot of the manufacturing has happened in Asia and there are a lot of holes and, and integrity gaps in that supply chain. But I think to ignore it and not, not be a part of it kind of robs you a little bit of the power to to control it or or give feedback not control it's it's feedback i have no control over any of those folks but they they definitely hear a loud voice from us and 
what they do with that is, is up to them, but they're definitely not getting that from the schools and universities that are buying from Cisco. How do you, it, it seems like you guys have a great community relation. How do you guys be the squeaky wheel? Do you have a staff, a member on staff dedicated to kind of community relations? Is it you? Uh, is it your sales team? Like, what, what do you think? We're still an extremely small team. Uh, we've been growing a lot in the past year, uh, past two years especially, but it's, it's a shared responsibility, I think. Uh, and when it comes to kind of the, the topic of the compostable products, it's definitely me that's, that's pushing back to the manufacturers, that communication. But when it comes to that ambassadorship within the community, that's, that's something that I, I've been totally amazed by as, a, as kind of a leader or founder of a business. It, it's been shocking to me when I worked in kind of corporate America or worked for the government, you know, all these different jobs that I had in past years. I thought that hiring and people management was going to be much, much harder than it, than it has been. So far, I've been amazed at how awesome people are <laughs> and like give people uh, agency in their work and, and responsibility uh, it, and, and build a good culture and a good, you know, really it's strong friendships inside, inside the business. And that, that allows them to really feel pride in what we do. And they take that back to, to the community, you know, their neighbors or their their neighborhood group, their, whatever they're involved in. Some are involved in, uh, you know, school programs. Some are involved in, uh, you know, social justice issues throughout the, the state or county. People get involved. And, yeah. and really, that's, that's nothing new to anyone in this community. But it's still been a shock to me at how, how easy it's been to to find good people and to put trust into people and have them represent you well in the community. So it's, it's a shared effort to answer you bluntly. It's a shared effort of like advocating for ourselves and really getting, getting the community involved. As you start to take on more food scraps, you realize very quickly that you need a better composting system to process the material. This is why I highly recommend the aerated static pile micro bin designed and made easy by O2 compost. In 60 days, I have finished compost without putting in the labor of turning the pile. The piles heat up to over 140 degrees, killing pathogens, weed seeds, and fly larvae, making the end product safe to use in the garden. With 32 plus years of experience in the compost industry, Peter Moon, owner of O2 Compost, is a leading expert in the field of ASP composting. I encourage you to set up a free half an hour consultation with Peter Moon by going to his website www.o2compost.com. That's the letter O, the number two, compost.com. If you mentioned that you heard about O2 Compost on this podcast, you'll receive a 10% discount on the purchase of the Microbin Compost Training Program. Well, you guys, it seems like you're doing a lot on many different fronts. And yeah, the facility has been the hardest. That's, that's yeah, the that crux was of, question yeah. is like, you know, you guys are selling four or, you know, four blends of soil amendment. 
Um, can you talk about those blends and can you talk about just, you know, the founding of the facility permitting all those challenges that every, you know, the infrastructure is the hardest part for any composter because we're all on the cusp. We're all pioneers, it feels like. Yeah, we we are. And those, I, I do think that those uh, four blends are not, they're not they're not out to market yet. So uh, I apologize for that. We recently implemented a new kind of like management software management system, and it does all of our accounting as well as our uh, help desk stuff and then our website. So of course, with these big transitions between software, we rebuilt the website. So that's probably just some filler stuff that I put on there and, and haven't kind of updated it yet. So major apologies for misleading you there. But Right now we're just selling one product and that's, that's our screened, just run of the mill compost. Uh, it's not a 50, 50 blend. Uh, there's no kind of after screening treatment. Compost. Yep. And what yep. kind of carbon material do you guys use? We use a little bit, a small amount of, of yard waste and leaves, but it's almost a entirety of arbor waste. So wood chips which is not ideal for us, but hey, it's, uh, it's kind of what we got right now. Mm -hmm. So our facility was, when we started, we didn't have a facility. There's nowhere in county to take material. Uh, and they even didn't allow for composting in county. Uh, the first like two years of the business, we spent kind of pushing the, the county government to adopt a zoning text amendment change which I could go into ad nauseum on what that entailed, but it was, it was mobilizing that incinerator group. That's what helped get that through on the county side as well. So the county, even though the state allows for composting facilities, the county said, no, not here. And we pushed to change that and it, it worked. Uh, they voted on it unanimously approved. Of How it. many people are in that incinerator group and I'm asking because like, how many people do I need to mobilize to make the same changes? I'd say there's about uh, six super active and 10 to 12 uh, that attend some of the calls and meetings. And we mobilize kind of, we meet a lot more when there's, there's issues kind of at stake. Uh, we've made a lot of progress in the state uh, not just for issues that are dear to me and Key City Compost, but uh, we've, we've made a lot of progress as, as a community. So there's not anything right now that's really happening with the local side. There's some state bills for, for yard waste, and not yard waste, uh, for organic spans, but yeah. No, but 20 people, I mean, I feel like anyone, any community composter could kind of put together a list of 20 people tell them, you know, th this is what we're here to do, to advocate for waste diversion, organics, recycling. And, you know, these are the laws that are standing in the way. Yeah. Um, and then maybe you could incentivize these 20 or so people with like, I don't know, <laughs> give them free compost or take 10, 20% off their monthly subscription. But like, that would pay dividends, I'm thinking, because 
you know, down here in my, my municipality, well, we operate in many municipalities, but the city of Orlando is the pain in the neck who um, has their own fleet of vehicles. And, um, you know, they're just, they have an ordinance that doesn't allow any food waste pickup, but they're not doing it. So we're operating kind of under the radar right now. Yeah. I feel like what it really takes is not me sending emails. It, it really takes like the community sending emails together. Um, but yeah. Yeah. Anyway. My biggest advice it, it, you're, you're kind of playing through the biggest advice that I give anyone, regardless of what their, their entrepreneur endeavor is just don't go away. <laughs> it's yeah. like the biggest thing. I mean, to, to have some, we're going to be the next Uber of whatever the next, you know, the Airbnb of this, it's like, you know, that emulation of some, you know, massive, uh, you know, software company, like, sure, there's those great ideas, those million dollar ideas, but really what happened to us is we just didn't go away and you, you eventually reach that, that momentum. So yeah, don't, don't stop collecting and eventually enough people will be doing it to where they'll just have to be forced to change the laws. I like that advice. It's yeah. the same advice I give people. Just keep showing Great. up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, back to your facility. So this group and you kind of like uh, leveraged some support. And next thing you know, you how big is your facility? You know, how much material are you processing per week? Yeah, we, we haven't done the numbers on what we're doing currently. Uh, in quite a while uh, with the pilot and all that's been going on. We, we're not really sure. Uh, but the, the facility that we're working on, we're not really operating that facility yet. So the permitted facility that we, we have approved has not yet been built. So we're operating, uh, let me track back a little bit and I'll explain it kind of from the beginning. Like we, composting wasn't allowed as a land use in our county even though you could get a state permit. So that's the law that we changed. We allowed for composting facilities to be an approved land use for agricultural land. And we had been trucking our material like once per week. Like I'd collect, you know, in a box truck, like a bin a day, you know, back when we had basically no customers and I'd aggregate everything into a box truck and drive that box truck over into West Virginia to a friend's farm that had, you know, adequate permits to handle uh, food waste. It was about an hour drive, but that once a week drive was how we kind of built up uh, support without breaking our backs. We recognized pretty quick that, you know, pitchfork in my backyard wasn't really going to cut it very long. So we started to look for bigger infrastructure and, and noticed that that policy change needed to be first on the list. And then when we got that done, it was almost instantly that, that we had a potential partner that we had been uh, friendly with for a, for a long time and uh, shared some, some visions together and some dreams. And uh, we, we wanted to work together. This was someone that, uh, that had retired and wanted to be involved in what we were doing. And with his partnership, his name's Richard, with Richard's partnership, once the zoning amendment got passed, we, we together bought a 30-acre parcel to build a compost facility. And that's, that's the full 
uh, parcel size it is 30 acres, but our active composting area with all the setbacks and uh, you know easements, we have to have forest conservation easements and uh, Richard's very much into sustainable agriculture and regenerative grazing and all these kind of uh, practical applications of what, let's be honest, buzzwords in agriculture, uh, kind of putting them all to the test, showing them off and kind of demonstrating some different activities. That's really what he wants to do. And to integrate that with the composting facility, we've got about five and a half acres of the center of this parcel is intensive kind of industrial composting ASP setup. And then around the outside of it is all uh, kind of Richard's, you know, his, his dream of having a regenerative agriculture demonstration site. Wow. That's awesome. And I did see Richard mention on your about us page. Um, so he does have that knowledge of how to kind of procure land like that and navigate kind of the codes and the permitting process? Yeah, well, somewhat. Uh, a lot of it was new at the county level. None of us knew anything. We spent, you know, unfortunately, probably pretty close to six figures on engineering because we went through like two engineers that claimed to be able to take us through the finish line on our composting facility but had never done it before. And an example is by not having the right engineers on team, we had inadequately communicated to the health department like what some of our needs were. Uh, and the health department told us that we needed to bring in eight feet of fill dirt on the entire 30 acres. It was like $4 million worth of fill dirt. And that was before we had any grading because they wanted the distance, the groundwater distance to groundwater to be like greater than that of the septic field. And so with, with better representation from the engineering side, we, we made it through a lot easier. A lot of it was, we, we had worked with uh, Jorge Montezuma, which I'm sure a lot of people know from Atlas organics. Uh, he, he was kind of the project manager on making sure that uh, we got through the state as well as the local uh, planning commission. We had to get a state uh, Maryland Department of Ag uh, Environment had to give us a permit for composting, a general composting permit. And then like all the nitty gritty stuff, that was so fast. It was surprising. Wow. Uh, it was extremely fast. They came out, uh, they, they worked with us back and forth on, you know, a couple Zoom sessions and uh, Jorge and and his team, we, we use Smith Gardner uh, engineering firm down in Carolina. They, they put together the plan for MDE and it got passed within weeks. And then about a year and a half later, we had our planning commission hearing, which was the most, uh, most difficult thing I've ever done. <laughs> sit through a, a seven hour planning commission hearing. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. People that, that's coming still in to, like next level there in you know the mid-atlantic where here in the state of florida i think you know i've spoken with jorge and i think he would agree with me it's pretty it's way less regulated to register a source separated organics recycling facility is what they call it 
Yeah. Um, you know, and every state's Department of Environment has a different law, but man, I commend you for going through that and spending all that money. Um, Richard you know, and Jorge were the ones that made that happen. Um, yeah. I kind of, without them, I don't see, I don't see how one could, could kind of bootstrap their way into an industrial composting facility. I, I don't see how it worked. We, we got extremely lucky. We would not have been able to do it with our own money. We would not have been able to do it with our own team. We needed outside professional help like Jorge. Is Atlas and, partners on this site? No, no, we, we paid Atlas outright. Uh, they, it was, They've gone through a couple uh, acquisitions since we first started working with them on this. So I'm not sure that they would do this again. Uh, we got very lucky to have their ear at a time where, where they were still kind of mom and pop. Um, they were still super successful and big at that point, but they were, they were interested in potentially uh, kind of putting together a consulting division, I believe. I'm kind of speaking uh, yeah. for them, but I think they wanted to get into that advisory kind of work, which now is why they like they're looking for like potential composting sites that they can scale up. Like they just yeah. purchased uh, dirt huggers out in Washington, Oregon, you know, right. I had no Oregon. idea. Yeah. Yeah. I talked to Pearson a long time. So that's uh, that Pierce was actually on the podcast as well. But um, yeah, so Atlas is one of the big movers in the composting industry. And I think you're right. They were more looking into like consulting and their modular ASP system, which I think they have piloting there still in, in Virginia in a municipality. Um, but th that's very lucky. Like, if you don't mind, I ask, how did you pay for all those you know, per, you know, engineering, permitting, just construction, like how, how can someone go about getting that financing? Uh, find a Richard. <laughs> uh, <laughs> equity. Um, yeah, sell, selling, selling equity. Um, there's, if, if you don't have it, you got to figure out how to, how to get it. Um, we got lucky. I don't know anything about that space, about investors and angel investors. And, you know, I watched Shark Tank or I, actually I've never watched Shark Tank. I listened to how we built it and a couple of podcast versions of it, but I'm familiar with that concept. And, and even then I feel inequipped to really like go after venture capital. Uh, so I don't, I don't have reclable, like you couldn't replicate my advice, <laughs> you just kind of got to get lucky and potentially uh, have someone that, that is trustworthy that's, that's going to step through that with you. And, and I got very lucky there. It's no, it's, it's no secret that, that I, don't, I don't know how I did it. it. It wasn't skill. It wasn't a plan. We, we ended up with this, this community partner, this you know, business partner that, that was interested in, in joining us on this. And he got it done. Uh, From a common yeah. sense perspective, do you think all this regulation and steps in the process is necessary for a composting site to be built? 
I mean, I know they're trying to prevent like a, you know, some guy with a farm uh, just dumping random stuff on his farm. But, you know, what if you are transparent and you're coming to the state's environmental department with your intentions, a well-written site plan, operations plan, like why is all this you know, necessary, is it kind of a deterrent? Do the, are the laws archaic, would you say? That's a great question. I think some of them are uh, archaic and old and, and need, uh, need a lot of reform. But in, I think Jorge left me with the best piece of advice in dealing with regulations and regulators and uh, permitters and inspectors is it was a very simple statement that he made to me uh you know not too complex but super helpful to keep in the back of my mind and that was think about the intent of the law not the language of the law so and that's the way that he would talk to regulators what is the intent of of this of this clause to help limit our potential to harm our potential to pollute and the intent is different than perhaps sometimes the way the law is spelled out. And, and I feel like a really good, someone that's really good at, at that communication, like Jorge is, uh, he kind of instilled that in us. And I think that it's, it's been very helpful in us establishing trust with, with regulators and our, our local permitters is, you know, another kind of example of this, this way of thinking was we, we had some neighbors try and shut us down for, for odor and noise and vibration and vermin. And the, the way that the regulations are written, you know, you can shut us down for, for having that, but you can't shut us down before we get started for the potential to have that. Like, yeah, a, a vehicle could be used as, you know, a, a deadly weapon. Like, you, you can't outlaw it because of the potential that it has. We have to actually break these, these agreements that we have uh, in order to disqualify ourselves for having a composting facility. And that's been the most helpful thing in so giving are you, some... Are you suggesting start and then go for the compliance? In, in a way, that's kind of what we did. Uh, we... We started on an exempt parcel and they, you know, the county, there's a 5,000 square foot exemption for, uh, for the state and the county didn't want us to do it. And they were like, well, just don't go beyond the state thing, even though it's illegal in county and we'll work on updating the regulations. And so it was this, this, this trust that like we're here to stay. And we want the regulations to be written in a way that protect both us, our business, but also the mm. municipality. I think yeah, that I that relationship is, is key and it can sometimes bypass some of the, the granular idiosyncrasies of, you know, lazy or, or um, lazy might not be a good word, but clunky legislation. Uh, mm -hmm. We've been able to bypass a bit of that by, by having good, good relationships. Like one that I, I think is interesting that's happening at the state level is we're advocating for more land to be accessible under the exemption. 
Uh, and, and I'm not sure how I feel on it because it, is it needed? Uh, I'm not sure it is needed. Like what we need is sure farmers, we want farmers to be part of decentralized access to, to food waste infrastructure, food waste processing infrastructure, composting. Mm. But in the state of Maryland, you're not allowed to sell it unless you have a permit. And so it's throttling that, that, uh, that farmer is taking a risk and opting to be part of the infrastructure, but he's not allowed to reap some of the rewards. And so far, I don't think many farmers are spending millions of dollars a year on, on good compost that to the, to the point to where legislation to allow them to make their own is going to have a big difference on the amount of infrastructure that we see popping up in our communities. But if we allow them to commercialize that, at least at some limited capacity, uh, and so that, that's a little bit of a rabbit hole, but it's in, in those ways where, yeah, the legislation is archaic and it's clunky, but yeah, but kind of pushing the, pushing the limits a little bit and kind of running up against those edges with, with your municipality or your state or local, uh, I think it's, it's helpful, but only if you're willing to play the long game and really encourage them to reassess why things are written a certain way. Uh, yeah. And again, back to our county, we've, we've got supporters. So it's, we, uh, <laughs> one of the best ones is, uh, I don't know if you know the name, but Linda Norris from the U.S. Compost Council, the communications oh. director for the U.S. Compost Council lives in Frederick. And so she was one that was on the, this incinerator fight. And because she's, you know, a pillar of the community, people know about composting because it's, it's her work. Uh, and so Damn, I'm so jealous. <laughs> <laughs> right. And that's, that's what I mean. Like I can tell you to go band together a group of 10 people, but we got stupid lucky in, in having a already mobilized group uh, that was dedicated and educated on it. Yeah. And I think uh, for anyone looking to delve into like industrial scale, composting, commercial scale, composting, there is a couple consulting engineering companies out there with long running track records. Uh, one of them is Atlas Organics, if they're still looking to do that. Uh, another is out on the West Coast, Peter Moon with O2 Compost, who advertises on this podcast, uh, Green Mountain Technologies, and Craig Coker, um, which is, I think he's in Pennsylvania, but he's also like, a long-running consultant. Um, yeah, he's he's in Virginia. He he 100%. helped. Yeah, he wrote some of the model ordinance. Uh, it didn't end up getting used, but it was the first uh, piece. ILSR put me in contact. The Institute for Local Self Reliance put me in contact with Craig very early on, and Craig drafted a letter uh, with some some legal jargon on like composting and model ordinances and I sent that to the county and I think that's that's how we got the first like little shake up of like oh they're they're not just kind of doing this at the farmer's market and like maybe they'll burn out like Craig was one of those first people to, to help me uh, flex that we were serious about building infrastructure long-term infrastructure in our community yeah man that's huge I I think that you know rather than 
going to some engineering firm who has no experience with uh, kind of permitting a compost site, you should go to one of those guys and save, you know, save going, you know, wasting your money. And, um, and I, I mean, did Craig Coker do that for you guys kind of like pro bono or was he? Honestly, uh, I think ILSR at that point had him on retainer because they were working on some policy projects within the state. And so uh, Craig said, yeah, it would take me three or four hours. And they were like, hey, we'll, we'll cover it. So it, okay, I, don't, yeah. I don't know if they appreciate me sharing that, but they, <laughs> you know, to ILSR's credit, they, they got us into this. Uh, we, we started Key City Compost because of an introduction to Inst- Institute for Local Self-Reliance. You know, I, was, I was working as a videographer, so I'd, I was doing way other things and uh, yeah. and got introduced to, to composting and here we are. Wow. Yeah. ILSR has been just like a, a huge pillar of the composting community and Brenda Platt has been on this podcast. So she talked about like all the great waste diversion work they're doing. They're also trying to break up the big waste monopoly, fight against incinerators um yeah just decentralize the waste industry which i think is exactly what needs to happen so yeah but i don't you know want to keep you too much on a friday night uh too much longer phil uh thanks so much for joining me on this podcast very happy to be here thanks for the invite all right have a good evening Please rate and review on whichever podcast platform you're listening to. If you feel like this is good content and you're learning a lot about compost, 